The creators at Grounded believe that brewing great coffee shouldn't be a shot in the dark, and we couldn't agree more. Use the coupon code The Coffee Podcast for 10% off Grounded at groundedcoffeebook.com. Our friends at Map It Forward are hosting two events we think you might be interested in how to map a successful career as a barista, and how to map a successful career in business as a coffee roaster. Use the coupon code The Coffee Podcast for 10% off your ticket. Remember, you can attend virtually. The following conversation is a living continuum that includes every link of the coffee value chain from before the seed to after the cup. I'm Jesse Hartman, and this is The Coffee Podcast. Episode 2 in our coffee roasting series contains a topic that a lot of us can easily underestimate, which is a shame because it's one of the most important skills to have in your coffee career. That's why we asked one of the experts in the field, Trish Rothgab, on the show to walk us through the key elements of being a good coffee taster. My name is Trish Rothgab, and I am the owner and co-founder of Wrecking Ball Coffee Roasting Company in San Francisco, California. Well, welcome, Trish, to the show. Thanks for agreeing to uh, join us for the conversation on coffee quality and tasting. Thanks for having me. So I kind of want to jump straight into the conversation. What is your experience with tasting coffee? So I guess I'm like everybody else. I started tasting coffee, and I believe everyone should kind of market in this in this way. When you first decided you liked it, when I first decided I enjoyed coffee was when I was uh, actually a girl, a young girl before high school. And I used to drink it with a lot of cream and sugar. And I didn't really think about it very much, but I would alternate between black tea with cream and sugar and coffee with cream and sugar. And then in high school, I drank it pretty much every morning. I began to be kind of a coffee nerd and went out to cafes. Back then, there weren't that many. So I would have to take the bus out places that had an espresso machine. And there were very few of those in the 80s where I lived. And in the south, like Silicon Valley of California, just south of San Francisco is where I grew up. And then i became a barista and uh, was a coffee roaster. But in terms of professionally and sort of technically tasting, uh, that would have been about 15 years ago. I really, my career in coffee spans over 30 years, but I would say that serious tasting in a measured and technical way didn't begin until halfway into that career. And a lot of us are, are that way. We didn't really get tested on our tasting until right. it really means something. So, yeah. What what was the moment 15 years ago that you, you're talking about this technical tasting? Was Did that have to do with the roasting side of things or is that more involvement with things like the CQI? And Well, I remember being um, thrust into certain positions and in certain instances where I was asked to taste in a technical way before I knew how to do it. So when I was a roaster and a barista, There were a couple of times I went to selection tastings or cuppings at importers' offices, and no one had ever taught me how to do that. And so I was kind of like just um, monkeying the movements of others and doing (laughs) my best. And um, so that happened once or twice, three times before I really started learning how to do it. And then what happened was I got involved in roasting and tasting things a little bit more seriously because 
I was tr- trying to create a certain taste or flavor uh, from my work, not mm-hmm. instead of just roast. I'd been roasting for maybe 10 years before that and a barista before that even. And uh, I was just tasting the coffee as the bosses told me to taste it or to check it for certain things. And, and that was fine. But then I um, got a couple of roasting jobs that were more about oh, let's create something. Let's make something different. One of my jobs was to create, help create a whole flavor for a new coffee company, a whole line of coffees in Oslo, Norway at a place called Mocha. And that was around 2000. Okay. And that was for, I was working for Robert Thorson, Robert William now, and he had a place called Mocha. And he's an importer now in Oslo and pretty well known. He was the first barista champion of the world in 2000 and he started this little roasting company and that was my first job where i actually got to really set um a flavor profile for the whole shop for the whole place and create a line of coffees and then after that i had jobs where from there i moved to tailor made farms in santa rosa which is north of san francisco and i came back to california and uh i had to transfer the coffee profiles from a probat roaster to a brand new roaster that was the beta model for something someone had never seen before, which later became the Kestrel that everyone uses, the Loring Smart Roaster yeah, that a lot of yeah. people use today. And that job, I actually, my first maybe few months there was just taking, because the probat was sitting next to this Kestrel beta model, and we were transferring profiles from one to the other so tasting was everything okay and then it wasn't very long after that i got uh involved with tasting cqi way which is the sca was then scaa protocols for green coffee evaluation and i was in one of the first classes of q in long beach california and that was 2003 and so gotcha. right around 2003, it really started to uh, ramp up in terms of how I technically evaluate coffees. So there's a lot there we could definitely dive into, but we're going to go ahead and I want to move on to a question. Um, I feel uh, if anybody could answer this question, it'd be you. Um, and it, it sounds like a simple question. I don't, I don't think it is, though. And the question is, uh, what is cupping? And before you answer it, you know, I've, I've heard... Um, cupping, the word cupping used in a lot of different environments, you know, so cafes that are, you know, technically tasting coffee um, in, in a consumer environment, right, where people are walking in, they, oh, hey, I'm in a coffee shop and y'all are cupping, right? So I've heard it used like that. I've heard it used as a cupping table post-roast to see quality and, hey, are we on, are we on par with how we want this coffee to taste for our people buying our coffees? And then I've seen it in context of buying green and things like this. And I've also heard the cupping table called sacred uh, experience uh, for people at Origin. So, how do mm-hmm. you? How would you describe cupping? And and what should what should we think when we hear the word cupping? That's a that's a great question, and I hope that my answer isn't frustrating for you. But um, I've been all over the place and cupped in all kinds of situations, and I would say that there are many <laughs> definitions to that sure. term, cupping. And I really try to, in you know, I'll answer the question in a technical way, but I 
I'll just preface it by saying that in, you have to be aware of the purpose and the environment in which you're cupping to be able to perform in that cupping. So knowing that you will be successful at any cupping you're in so long as you can adjust to what you've got going on there. Mm. The technical term for cupping is, or I don't know if it's, I guess the technical term is liquoring. And that's when you create the water off of the, the liquid off of the coffee grounds. And that liquor is, is what we sip. And that liquor is what we consume. You're, you are technically liquoring every coffee you've ever had to drink because you have to drink it in a liquid form. So if you make an AeroPress or a pour over or a Fedco brew, that's a liquoring of the coffee. But technically when we liquor coffee, it's the same way we do for a, um, a tea tasting. And they've just developed one for cocoa actually, where you um, sit the product right in the water and let it steep and somehow separate. It's not that much of a separation for coffee as the coffee just sinks to the bottom and the liquor rises to the top of the cup and you sip off of that. And cupping is, like I said, for the purpose, it can be many different things. And you can use a cupping, a liquoring of coffee to uh, assess coffees, many different coffees next to each other almost simultaneously, if not totally simultaneously. And this has its benefits, and that's why people do it. It tends to be, I'm not going to say it's the perfect brew, but I will say that it tends to give us that impression that we need. It's not supposed to be um, what most people enjoy, the average end user enjoys, mm-hmm. and uh, but that's okay. If we as professionals can kind of process what this liquoring has done for us in that moment, then we can use that to inform our decisions moving forward. And so the liquoring has a very strict definition of how it's pr- the protocol is very strict, as strict as it can be about uh, what the roast profile should be for liquoring um, under the specialty guidelines, what the water temperature would be, what the ratio of water to coffee is, what the steep time is. And in every lab, so to speak, we could call them cupping labs or evaluation labs, you will have people that have an even stricter guideline within their own four walls to keep it as consistent as possible and to eliminate variables. So even things down to when you break the crust on the top of the coffee, in other words, collapse the crust of coffee grounds, Mm -hmm. how many times you stir that and in what way you stir those down. I mean, that's, that's very detailed and, and people are, are apt to do that within the four walls of their own lab. Thank you, Trish. And, and yeah, I appreciate your, your answer. Um, I've seen the word used in, in a lot of different contexts, but it is also helpful to get a, a technical definition. And this liquoring is something we've never discussed on the show. So that's really exciting uh, for us to think about that. And uh, yeah, it sounds like context plays a major role in the effectiveness of liquoring and, um, and cupping as well. So um, yeah, context is everything because if you're in a cafe situation, for example, at my cafe, it's very, very small. I have a tiny shop in San Francisco, and it really is like 95% takeaway, 
which is great. Um, but we don't have any room to do public cuppings. And I don't really invite people into my shop for that. I don't have a lot of room at my roastery for people to come in all the time and taste. But we do taste every single day at, at the roastery. And we're doing production cuppings there. And those are, well, it's like a 100% cupping of everything we've roasted. And uh, that's, that's something that happens regularly, but that's even different than a selection cupping. And a selection is when you really put a new coffee you've never tasted before and never seen before mm-hmm. through its paces and really give it a score and be really rigorous with it. Yeah, that, that sounds like something you might be doing when you're looking to purchase coffee. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's a perfect segue uh, with the question, so why does, it, why does a green buyer need to know how to, how to cup coffee? Well, not all of them need to. Uh, most of us need to know how. In really, really big situations, really, really gigantic companies, uh, in specialty or otherwise, the buyers are more, the green buyers are more um, separated from quality control people. So the buyers are actually the people dealing with hedging and uh, finances and dealing with price points where the tech, the uh, quality control people may be completely different than those people. Gotcha. And they're making sure that they know what the, what the coffee tastes like and dealing with kind of the materials they get. But most green buyers in our sector of specialty need to know what they're buying in order to decide whether it's worth the price they're putting on it and to uh, make the best decisions. You're essentially buying a product um, just like if you were a fashion buyer for a um, department store, you would need to have an eye on fashion and know that what is quality and and what you're trying to go for. So yeah, it's um, a simple connection most of the time. So even even in what you just said, it sounds like quality could technically be a moving target, right? If the if the consumer of coffee, if the the end drinker of coffee's tastes change, you might be looking for something different. Is, Is that kind of what you were saying there as well? I would say that from my point of view and uh, from most coffee buyers' point of view, and even though specialty buyers are all levels of kind of skill level, understanding, and how much experience they have, I would say most of us don't believe that quality changes. What does change is our interpretation of how we express that to the end user. So where quality and we're we're accepting more ideas of quality all the time but quality is a pretty constant um the moving target is not really going to be the end user it's it's how we express that quality to the customer gotcha if that makes any sense you know there there are different moments uh, when you're cupping coffee in the purchasing process um from what I understand, what moments in buying green make it sort of vital to have somebody who knows what they're tasting and how to taste on your team? What, what would you like identify as the major points in purchasing coffee? Well, I mean, I personally, I can't be there all the time. And while that I might be considered the chief taster in something uh, in the cafe, I'm not um, the only taster and I can't be. And then there are people who have, it's really true that there are people who have off days. We know we can't focus and we can't do some of the things we want to do um, every day. 
And so you have to have other people on your team. They catch things that you don't catch all the time. So I would just say uh, that production cupping that I mentioned, every single day we taste the coffee that we roasted the day before. Mm -hmm. And there are people on my team that, and I've told this story a few times recently because it came up recently and I find it really interesting. There's one guy uh, who actually who came up through the ranks in my company, was a barista, and then he was a lead, lead trainer, and then he got into org- the organization of the company because that's really what he loves is is uh, doing admin stuff. But he's a great taster, and he comes from a great pedigree of other coffee companies before us. So we're happy that he has such a great understanding of coffee. But mm-hmm. he also is in charge of bills going in and out for Wrecking Ball. So he has to understand why I'm buying what I'm buying. So I feel mm-hmm. really lucky with that guy. His <laughs> name's Adam. And one of his his things that he is good at is tasting the flavor of iodine or medicinal, which in the coffee hmm. business, we've termed phenolic, a medicinal note, which is a defect in coffee. Right. And he has a really like spidey sense about it. He gets it way before anyone else. If there's barely, barely a hint of it, he'll get it. Hmm. And it's because he actually loves the flavor. And why does he love the flavor? <laughs> because he hikes. He hikes long, long distances and doesn't bring water with him, mm-hmm. but instead brings those iodine tablets to uh. purify the water that he finds in streams. And so after he's had these long hikes, he purifies water and he guzzles this water that has this iodine taste. So for mm-hmm. him, his connection is that it's delicious right. and thirst-quenching. <laughs> and so he finds it, and uh, I'm happy he finds it. He doesn't mind it, but he always knows he has to tell us when he gets it, even a little bit. So that's what's great about him. And those are the things you have to really watch for other people. If you're in someone, you're in a position like I am where I've been around and I'm like the queen of the house and I come in there like I'm the chief taster and the head judge of everything, that can intimidate other people. And you have to be really someone who watches your team and finds their strengths and uses your those strengths and builds on those strengths to make it a full tasting team. I see. So now, now we're talking about a team of people influencing decisions, um, yeah. tasting together, which I think might be contrary to what a lot of people might think when it comes to, hey, I need somebody who can taste coffee on my team, not, hey, I need a team of people who can taste coffee. Right? Yeah, we have... Um, kind of it's unofficial but a chief i always organize the chief tasters as me uh my lead roaster and adam as i mentioned uh who is like i said most of the time he's sitting at a desk looking at spreadsheets but i pull him down every day to cup just you know he likes getting off his desk but also i need him and i believe this about every coffee company the person who's in charge of the money needs to know why the coffee buyer is doing what they're doing. They can't just be completely divorced from that understanding. But I'm lucky because Adam's great at it. So Izzy, who's my lead roaster, me and Adam really make solid decisions. I call in my husband, Nick, who's co-founder and co-owner of the company to taste. He was once a Q grader. He's lapsed, which means he's timed out of his three years as a Q grader and didn't kind of come back for uh, calibration, but that's fine. He understands how to liquor coffee and he tastes coffee more in the end user side and the cafe. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of like, he can sometimes be the tiebreaker or a final word or an impression that we're not used to 
tasting. I see. Okay. Um, so he's also very important. Then other people are always welcome to come and taste. And uh, we always, and like I said, I'm always looking to see what their strengths are and if they should really be brought in more often or developed more as tasters. I but see. I would say it's those three people are the most important. Me as the coffee buyer and the one who wants to set a certain say, flavor profile for the company. Izzy's who's doing most of the roasting and Adam who is also a uh, check on the flavor of the of the c- company. As far as roasting goes then, uh, you know, obviously your roaster is one of these core people who need to, need to taste the coffee. Why, and, it, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm still going to ask a question. Why do you think it's important for a roaster to understand how to taste coffee? It's everything to do with, you know, this is Izzy's first roasting job. Um, although they've had tons of experience liquoring coffee in their, their time in coffee. And so coming off the bar, coming off barista where they feel like they, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm speaking for them. They feel like they maybe have hit that threshold of, I got to learn more. And they happen to be very interested in, um, plants. Mm. Izzy, Izzy happens to be. So to roast the coffee is the next step logically for them, but tasting has to be part of every day because they have to understand what that heat application and what they're doing to the roast, how it changes the coffee. And it can be in minute ways. Mm. Of course, it can be in huge ways. But any coffee company, their major calling card is going to be the roast level on the coffee. It's going to be the selection of coffee and the roast level of the coffee. That's what makes your coffee company. That's what they do every day. They taste the coffee every day with, with us. And then I can, I can access the logs with Izzy and go over them and decide if adjustments need to be made, if at all, or if a coffee is aging out or if a coffee isn't performing as we thought it would under that certain profile and, and moving the heat application in different ways for the next time. Um, and so they have to understand why I, why I'm asking them to do certain things. And then I have to try to get them to agree because I, I believe that their point of view is important. So yeah, we work on those things together. Very collaborative. Gotcha. So it sounds like every day they're tasting coffee, um, probably in some kind of setting. I want to move now into how should a roaster taste their roast? Uh, you mentioned logs. Sounds like you're taking notes uh, as you taste the coffee. What what does that setting look like? It sounds like the production cupping you were mentioning earlier on. Is that correct? Yeah, we have uh, a, the cupping tables right next to the roaster actually because we're a small roastery. But it's uh-huh. uh, we don't log the production cuppings. We don't take notes other than in our own small notebooks if we'd like to what the the log is is the roasting log so what what did that roast do that made it taste like this i see and every single batch is logged in a way that roasters usually log the coffee but uh, we taste our roasts that way every day in the liquoring way Um, even the espresso blend which is not typically done for most roasters, I think, but we have ourselves calibrated to what the liquoring of the espresso blend tastes like to know that it's correct. And then, uh, we taste through the espresso machine regularly through the week. And then once a week, Izzy and most of the time I meet Izzy at our cafe and we taste it straight off our bar, exactly how the breezes are making it. Gotcha. 
yeah, all the coffees, all the different ways. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you know there's there's a process that you have in it, all this in the context of sort of maintaining or or raising up quality, right? That's kind of the purpose of of these regular tastings at almost every point. Yeah, we uh, yeah we have to listen. It, sometimes it's a chore to get those cups out and taste the coffee because in a way we're like, it's just going to taste like it did yesterday. It's the (laughs) same thing as before. It's very monotonous. But the first time you start to think that's the case is when you find something on the table that's different. Hmm. And, uh, it'll, it'll surprise you. You can go five days with not a thing to say to each other at the cupping table in production. And then, all of a sudden something pops up and it's like, oh, call everyone up from the upstairs offices to come down and taste this weird thing that happened to the coffee. And why is it like this? And and so you can't really relax on that part, even though it seems boring and arduous. And it's like, oh, we got to wash the cups now. Oh, we have to grind and so many cups and blah, blah, blah. Right. But then we can't just leave it to that because that's not the true way the end user is tasting the coffee. Our guests are tasting it in different ways. And so if we go three and four days, never tasting our coffee with milk added, we definitely need that Friday or that one day where we go to the cafe and taste cappuccinos and what's a cortado like Mm -hmm. and what's it like with the oat milk and how does it react to an Americano if by some chance somebody wants to taste it that way and then what is the batch brew taste like? And what does the pour over taste like? And yeah, so we have to know what it's going to be like. Because liquoring won't do that for you. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's uh, it's thorough, right? And, and you said it, it could be really kind of like, oh, man, again. And if you've ever set up a coffee cupping, uh, production cupping, and you know how many coffees you can have uh, at a roaster, like it can, it can be quite you know, annoying at times like, Oh, this again. And you got to clean everything and, and it can be quite messy even. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's messy and it's kind of just a pain to do it, especially (laughs) if you're having a really busy day. Right. And like for us, the cupping, the production cupping is every day at two, um, two o'clock in the afternoon. So someone's late coming back from lunch. Usually it's me or a meeting shows up or, someone just comes to the roastery and needs to talk or it's just so busy and no one, yeah. Oh, now it's two thirty, and we got to get the cupping up. Like, yeah, but we just do it and we just know it has to be done. So, you know, you, we, you do all this cupping, uh, you do this tasting, this liquoring. And at the end of the day, um, you're selling coffee, right. To a consumer. And in, in the cafe setting, um, say they come up to the register, they're ordering a coffee. The barista kind of has the opportunity, or the or the person at the cash uh, cash register has the opportunity to communicate the coffee to the guest. But when it comes to, I guess, walking in to purchase a bag, now you're talking about how do I sell this coffee um, in terms of tasting notes, right? I feel like tasting mm-hmm. notes is a really important element um, mm-hmm. to the bag, right? So, how important is it that you get your tasting notes? I, I don't even know how to even ask this because it, it's kind of philosophical. Yeah. Like, how do you get them right, mm-hmm. correct for the guest? Well, you know, this is something that has been one of the great the great journeys in the la- latter part of my career is to really delve into this idea of phenomenology and how people describe coffees. And that's one thing that the Q program opened up for me to learn these things. 
about coffee um, and the way people describe coffees because Q is a worldwide program. I travel all over the world to train people on how to taste coffee and everybody has their own personal history with all the things they've tasted, having to do with where they grew up, having to do with the thing they like to eat, having to do with the kind of drink their grandmother gave them every night before they went to bed with right. warm milk with spice in it or you know all of these things come to play at the table when you're trying to be a professional and liquor in a technical way there's just no way around it and then like i said at the beginning where there's all different kinds of cupping there's cupping for production there's cupping for analysis there's cupping for contests there's cupping for selection there's cupping at the farm. There's cupping in the cafe. There's also different ways to describe coffee, and you kind of have to get your head around what is the purpose of this description everywhere you are in every setting, mm. and then you're fine. So long as everyone there understands the same thing about the purpose of that description. So when it comes to the baristas at my shop, or any barista really, I need that to be something that comes from them. I don't give them right. words to say. And in fact, I just recently, after three years at this cafe, I just recently wrote shelf talkers for my own coffee on the shelf. I hadn't done it before because I didn't want to put words in anyone's mouths because as soon as you do that, the barista starts kicking out things because they think that's what you want them to say. Right. The barista will say, oh, this has notes of nectarine and purple orchid. And, <laughs> and it's like... No, it doesn't actually. And the your guests at the cafe don't taste any of those things. Right. They're tasting coffee and they enjoy it and they can probably determine that it's a little bit more complex mm -hmm. than something else that they've had recently. But uh, not that I'm trying to dumb it down for anybody. I'm trying to keep it in a place where they can enjoy. And the baristas have to, they have to exude that kind of like enjoyment of it. It can't be a chore for them to convince someone there's peach in their coffee or lemon rind in their coffee in terms of, you know, the specifics of it. So I really look at it like, I really try to ask the baristas, what do you like about this coffee? What would you say about it? And can you taste this and this in it? And I might give some leading descriptions for them to kind right. of get them on the right track because mm -hmm. not everyone has that association with their memory and their words as quickly as I do. And that's essentially what training for notes is, is how quickly can you access those words that you know are there? You know, because most people, if they don't have that quick access, they kind of struggle and they taste the coffee and go, what is that taste I'm tasting? And right. what is that? I don't know. And then they leave it at that. In the professional world, we have to find out what that is. Mm -hmm. So when we say to ourselves, what's that flavor I'm tasting? It's, on our, it's our job to, to name it. Where most people in the world don't have that job. Most people in the world just want to enjoy a cup of coffee and be like, oh, that one was better than the other one and I'm going to reach for it again. Right, right. So, it, you know... The next direction I have on this is, you know, you can you can put really anything you're tasting on the bag. You, it's a free game, right? If you taste it in the coffee, you could technically put it on the bag. But you'd mentioned earlier uh, with, I believe you said, Adam, who liked the taste of sort of that medicinal iodine 
situation, you don't want that on the bag. So no, no. <laughs> so well, no, he would be tasting that, and you know that's a, in a selection cupping, and would be like, yeah, reject. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so you're rejecting, but say he had his own company, and he's like, you know what, I like these coffees. Like, there are probably things you should avoid on the bag, right? right. Yeah. What What well, are some no, examples? If he had his own. No, if he had his own coffee company, he would reject that because he would know. And he understands, <laughs> right? He understands that iodine is for right. the hike. It's not for the coffee. <laughs> right on, right on. But um, yeah, there are things on the bag. You know, of course, everyone in the business tries to work to get the best flavors so that their bag can say the best things. And that is a large, largely to do with marketing. And there are a lot of terms that we use in coffee um, that our mar- marketing teams in coffee, those people that have big marketing teams and mm-hmm. and doing all that work, they want us to put things on the bag that sometimes the quality control people don't want on the bag because technically those terms mean nothing. And so if you're someone like me that I have to have my eye on all the stuff, right? I have to buy right. the coffee. I need quality control to be on point. I need to give feedback to the farmers and i also need to get the baristas comfortable with it and i also need to sell it and so i have to i am someone who has to do all those things because this is my company and i want all those things to be firing on all cylinders so i will allow things for that makes sense to the end user that doesn't make sense for a technical person like the words you know often get made fun of the words bold and rich these are words that you see maybe, you know, people will make fun of Starbucks or something for having mm-hmm. these words back. But those mean something to people. Those are words that mean something. And when I talk to brand new coffee enthusiasts or people into, the, into our shop and the, they say, I really like your coffee because it's really rich and bold. Am I supposed to smirk at them? Am I supposed to tell them they're wrong? No, these are words that mean something to the average person. Mm-hmm. And so... We have to allow some of that because it does convey some impression of the coffee. It's not a lie. It means something to people. And so when we're looking at the marketing of coffee or the words we put on the bag, I'm really careful. And in fact, like I said, I just have shelf talkers on the shelf at my company and on the website, but I don't put them on the bag itself. Gotcha. Um, who knows? I might It might be a slippery slope. It might start happening. But I don't want to... <laughs> uh, I've been shying away from a lot of that stuff on purpose because I don't want to tell people what they're tasting. And most of the time we are wrong. <laughs> yeah. The bags that you read, you might, you might buy, and I know this has happened to you, bought a coffee and it has these words on the front and you taste the coffee and you love the coffee. It's a great coffee, mm-hmm. but you don't agree with anything it says on there. <laughs> and that's I, well, kind of what I want to avoid. Uh, I don't think that, the average consumer thinks I'm false advertising, but yeah. I do. The average consumer is going to be like, "Whatever, wrecking ball. You have to put these words on your bag, and it doesn't mean anything." But right. good thing I like coffee because I'll come back for whatever this is. You know, right, right. But I, I'm sure as a you know as a business owner, as a brand owner, like you want people to see everything as intentional, right? So mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. I, I guess that's where that's where the uh, getting it. Like in the right ball field, yeah, because it gets so tricky because everybody's tongues are different, so it's like you yeah, can't yeah. can't really nail it down necessarily. So I think I go for the broad brush strokes when I describe coffees. Like if I have a right now, I have a Peru 
and I have an Ethiopian coffee, for example, single mm-hmm. origin coffees, and those are very different coffees. Um, so what are the broad brushstrokes? Well, Ethiopia is, is one that, <laughs> as we know in the business, tends to win a lot of competitions, mm-hmm. and baristas like to use it in competition because it's easy to pull out those notes for people. They can easily say it has a citrus note, it has a floral note, and it has, you know, like that. Those are things that are easy, and those are pretty specific for nuance. But for Peru, Peru is a lot more like it's a soft, round finish. It doesn't have a bright, sparkling acidity. So I'm not going to mention the acidity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For the average consumer, it's not that it doesn't have acidity, but it's not the acidity of that Central American coffee that I got or that Guatemalan coffee that's really, really bright. Mm-hmm. On that coffee, I would mention the brightness of the coffee, mm-hmm. that it's going to be lively. And for the Kenya coffee that I have on the shelf right now, I might say it's bracing in its, in its brightness or its acidity. I would never say it's sour, even though technically it's sourness that you're tasting. <laughs> So I'm not going to say sour. I'm going to say bright or a, or a nice acidity that's balanced with. And mm-hmm. that's another thing with the end user. If you say acidity, that could be a good thing for some people because they appreciate sourness and things. But you have to always say it in my in my book, at least. I like to mention the balance with mm. some kind of sweetness or some kind of chocolatiness because people don't accept sourness without a balance on it. Right. Or it's harder for human beings to accept sourness without some kind of sweet balance or nutty balance or something else that brings it uh, into a delicious place. Right. So I'm always conscious of saying, for example, if coffee, a coffee is, has a heavier impression than another one, a lighter impression than another one between the two, which is going to be, you know, which is going to pair better with a chocolate cake. You should be prepared to say things like that, you know, which is going to be great if you took it home and actually pulled shots at home with it and which is going to be just like too sour to do that with. Because a lot of people will do that. A lot of our customers will have home espresso setups and they which one of these can I take home for espresso? I've had Pillow Fight, which is my espresso blend. Had that a million times. I want to pull something different out of my espresso machine. And then I always tell them, well, it's going to be pretty bright because I don't roast this espresso profile on everything. But you could try this one and uh, it's Mm going to be lend itself to more cream and sugar if you like that. So that's the kind of stuff that the average consumer wants to know. I'm a believer that everybody who's in the cafe needs to be a good salesperson. I feel like in order to sell the coffee, you need to know how to express the coffee to the guest. And so there's a whole conversation I feel that there could be on on sales training in the cafe setting, on tasting notes and and priests needing to know how to taste. But I kind of have one uh, big final question, and this is more directed towards those people who may just now be starting a roasting company or they're kind of smaller and they don't have the funds to train everybody, you know, should, should training one of your staff members in your roasting company be a no brainer? And should it be the person roasting the coffee if your resources are limited? I think that there's no um, excuse for 
just having a roaster living in a bubble and only putting heat on green coffee and never never tasting their own work. There, I don't find there is any excuse for that. And if people are like, well, we're so busy, there's no time for the roaster to taste coffee. In my opinion, you don't understand the job of being a roaster. It's hmm. just not, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So if it's just you and you have the means and uh, are able to hire someone to help you and you put that someone in roasting or anything else, let's say it's a two person for a long time. It was just, you know, for a good year and a half, it was only me and Nick, my husband, they're running the whole thing. And we were <laughs> roasting somewhere else and we were bring all the coffee home and cup it on our kitchen counter. Yeah, It was only two of us. And so I needed someone else to cup with me. You must you have to have someone else. And it may mm-hmm. take you a while to find that Adam that you have on your team that's great at tasting. And maybe you're in a patch where no one's really getting it, but you have to work through it. And everyone kind of, it's kind of everyone's job. It's too, it's too busy. We don't have time to set up cups. Well, I guess it's going to be a late night then because we're going to set up cups. I got you know, you. just have to do it. Um, and you'll be better for it. It's tough. It's like, yeah, it's, it does. It's not always a cocktail party. A lot of times, it's just people don't want the bother of setting up cups, and then they have to. Now, I have a, a fun question. Just came to my mind. You know, when if if any of our listeners have have cupped coffee before, they may be familiar with this situation. But you walk into a room, and everybody's kind of maybe they're circling the coffee and they're using the cupping spoons, and they're slurping. And uh, there's there's a noise that happens when you slurp, right? There's the I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. make it here. It would be horrific for our listeners' ears. But yeah, um, how important is it for that sound to be loud? Is is that is that a sign that you're doing it right? Or I th- I think that this is just something that I've faced and seen, yeah. and I'm curious. How do you know that you are slurping correctly? <laughs> I guess is my question. Yeah. Well, I think that the problem with the the loud slurps is that people believe that everyone's putting on airs and they're trying to like, it's like a one-upmanship of of slurping. Like, how loud can I be? That means I'm legit. Right. It's really like, and that's where it bothers people. That's where people react to it. Like, this guy's just trying to take up more air in the room and be like the loudest guy. <laughs> and I don't know that that's not true, but I would say that... <laughs> My perspective comes from a whole different place, and that is, what are you getting out of your slurp? Mm. So for, I'll just say that for, for my part of it, my slurp has changed over time, and my current slurp is kind of like a zipper at the hot stage, and then when it gets to a lot cooler, because you have to cup, coffee, cup the coffee through different temperatures. Mm-hmm. When the coffee gets cooler uh, and I can hold it in my mouth more, it's less less of a zipper sound and more like a slurp that everyone else is doing. So more clunky. I see. And what? So what are you doing there? So the zipper sound, uh, which is not through my teeth, I find that people make more sound if they do it. They try to spray it through their teeth, like they kind of clench their teeth and zip the coffee through their teeth. Mm-hmm. That makes more sound than if you're kind of doing it the right way, in my opinion. And the right way would be to open your mouth more and find a way to aspirate and spray it through your mouth, through your open mouth, and all over your, using air to bring it in and spraying it all over your palate and all over the inside of your mouth as well, trying to hit your retronasal area. And that is behind 
And that can happen with the volatile nature of hot coffee, meaning that it's still vaporous. It's still wafting up inside your head and behind your nose, which is your mm. retronasal area. That gives you another impression of the smell of the coffee or the aroma. So that's the important part of the hot slurp. And that's the important part of zipping it in my, if you can perfect that, that you're not choking, that's the thing that can make noise. And when people try to do it and they do it through their teeth, they're going to create a really high-pitched sound. But that's how some people learn how to do it the right way is they have to first do through their teeth. I see. And then the, as the coffee cools off, I want to assess the texture of the coffee and the body of the coffee and some of the other tactile elements of the coffee. I'll just slurp it more like you hear a lot of people slurping, which if you understand what I'm saying, it's a more clunky kind of slurp. It's like falls in big clumps on your tongue when you slurp that way, just like a sort of thing. (laughs) And that is useful, um, but it's not everything. If you do that only, you're going to miss a lot of things about the coffee too. So my new way of slurping is to, yeah, I guess I can be loud for some people who aren't used to it, but um, I used to be louder, if that helps anybody, <laughs> uh, as I've kind of refined it and you do it more and more, you can figure out how to get that spray without making that noise. And that's what I try to do. I have a zip sound, which is kind of very, it sounds very efficient and it sounds very like mechanical, but that zip goes away towards the end when I'm really like assessing other things about the coffee. So I would say that people have to, they have to get loud in order to not be loud later. (laughs) I see. Okay. Yeah. You got to work on it and you should work on it a long time. It doesn't come to everybody and you shouldn't just decide what your slurp is for the rest of your life. You you really (laughs) should be owning it. You know, don't be like, Oh, I got the zip sound right. So I must be doing it right. What is it doing in your mouth? Right. So you have like a signature slurp. So people know you're in the room. Right. I guess I have that, but what people might not notice is that I change it throughout the cupping. Because my first slurp is the first impression, right? So people hear the zip. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'm not as loud as I used to be when I used to do it badly. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. No, right on. So, Trish, we've come to the end of our interview. uh, And, you know, we have listeners from all over the industry. People, Some people just now getting into coffee. um, And some people who have been in coffee for quite some time. As somebody who has, you know, 30 plus years in the industry, do you have any advice for our listeners, people who are passionate about this, this industry and the people in it? Yeah, I would say that, um, when I started in the business, there wasn't really a lot of information. I guess you, everyone could assume that's true. And we didn't know very much about how coffee could be and the possibilities that coffee could offer for specialty specifically. And so there was really a trend back then and up until about 10 years ago still to just learn the truth about coffee. And I would say that the new generation of coffee people should be prepared to just keep your mind way, way open and understand that every single time you taste a coffee is the potential for you to learn something that coffee can do that it did not do before. So where, like I said, in the old days, we were just trying to match things that fit an archetype. In other words, Guatemala coffee should taste like this. Mm-hmm. I would say the new, the new um, people in coffee and even the old people in coffee like me need to shed those ideas 
and realize that every every time you get offered a new coffee is the potential for a new flavor we haven't had before because there are new things happening all the time with processing with uh, new varieties being discovered and propagated specifically separations are happening new countries are growing coffee that weren't growing specialty before Mm -hmm. and it just it just never ends so just i would say if you know what quality is you can find it in all of those things and in any of those things right on well thank you trish thanks for your time and for joining us on the show thanks for having me So knowing how to taste coffee and coffee quality go hand in hand, side by side, as we've learned in this conversation with Trish. What are things you took out of this conversation? Feel free to share that with us on our social media platforms, and you can always find us on our website at thecoffeepodcast.org. The Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jesse Hartman. Music is by Michael Parallax. You can find him at michaelparallax.com. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.